Hello and welcome to another edition of the Transfer News Central podcast. I'm Johnny Bentley, your host, and this week I'm joined by one of the most underrated sports commentators around. I only say that, Adam, because the general public seem to only know Martin Tyler from FIFA, and I think it's quite by name, so I think it's quite uh, a shame. But Adam Summerton's with me, so good, good afternoon, Adam. You're probably hearing this either evening or morning, but good afternoon. How are you doing in these unprecedented times? Yeah, pretty good. Enjoying some extra time with my kids, which is uh, a great bonus of it all. But I love my job, like a lot of people fortunate enough to do what I do. So yeah, I'm missing that like anybody else really, missing the football, playing lots of football in the garden with the kids and just trying to fill the void really. Watch, I've even I've even been watching back old Football Italia videos on YouTube and stuff like that to try yeah. and get some sort of fix. But yeah, I mean, it's there's more important things right now, isn't there? But it's uh, I can't lie, I am missing it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we've seen on Twitter Clive Tilsley commentating on his wife's cooking. <laughs> Ian Dark, who was on not too long ago, the podcast is currently up now, so do listen to that. That's a tick on the old plug box. He's listening to. He's, he's been commentating on himself in the garden, scoring goals. You know, yeah, it was as you said, well. it was a fantastic goal. Um, yeah. You can teach an old dog new tricks because that was right <laughs> in the top corner, wasn't it? So I ask really? you: Have you indulged in any bizarre activities yourself? I did. I'm lucky enough to have a country park behind my house, and I've been walking there most days. And I did one day commentate on the formation of the swans and the uh, <laughs> and the and the ducks on <laughs> on the uh, on on the lake. And uh, yeah, I even commentated on my little girl playing crazy golf in the background. Oh, so fair play, yeah, fair it has play. got a little bit weird at times, but uh, yeah, yeah. Other than that. I've, I've, I've kind of not really been doing anything in terms of work mode, really. Well, I, ho- I hope you haven't been drink- drinking any bleach because, um, you know, no, that, that's certainly that. been... You do not drink bleach, anyone who was thinking about it. <laughs> you know, certain people seem to think you can, but that's not for me to comment. Anyway. I did I did clean my windows the other day with Ajax, and it, I, it did bring it back to me that a year ago, almost to the day, I was commentating on Ajax in the, in the Champions League. I, I did kind of summed that. Up, it kind of summed up the way the... Things have changed, really. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Massive, massive. Uh, I, I can't imagine how things... I mean, it's amazing, actually. Someone mentioned that last month, it might be two months ago now, because I can't remember when I read the... Tri- no, it wasn't. It was last month. Eric Dyer ran into the stadium, ran into the stand to confront a yeah. fan. And that was, that was like major news. And now all of a sudden... I mean, it seems like 10 years ago, that, doesn't it? It does. Absolutely yeah, mad. Yeah, it does. Absolutely yeah. mad. But I think we'll, we'll move on to the uh, National League, actually, uh, the, at the moment, because I was, I was reading an article recently that National League's cancelled the rest of the season as clubs voted overwhelmingly in favour of that for the, probably the benefit of, of each of themselves. And you've you know, gained quite a big following uh, on BT Sport f- for being a lead commentator of the National League. And before we get on to what it was like to do that, because I used to do a little bit of commentating on, in, in non-league clubs, I thought it was very different to what you know, we imagine football to be at the top end. I'm a bit, I'm a Burnley fan. Very even even as being a Burnley fan, the, the vast difference. But we'll talk about that after. Right now, on that decision, do you think that that was essentially the only decision that they could have made to at least have some hope of of avoiding going bust? Well, I think that's you've you've hit the nail on the head. I think as to the primary reason, perhaps as to why the decision is is made. I think there were clearly big financial concerns there. And look, someone like me, who's whilst I do commentate on the league, I'm, I'm not financially involved in, in any of the clubs. And I think, I guess, someone like me is, you know, as frustrating as it is to be, you know, what I think it was some clubs had eight games, some clubs had nine games left. 
you know, to go through that whole season and have a 46 game regular season and for it to be abandoned at that point, I think for everybody concerned, it's hugely frustrating. And, and I you know, can only say as a broadcaster who's covered the league all season, it is, it's really frustrating. And I, and I feel that for everyone. But I think as a fan of the league, I have to respect the fact that the clubs who clearly is their futures, there's jobs, uh, livelihoods at risk here. And they've come to the conclusion unanimously that they feel that that is uh, the best option. And, and I think that I have to, as, as everybody else does, has to respect that really. But it's, uh, you know, there's still decisions to be made in terms of promotion and, and relegation and whether the season is, is null and, and void. But I, I think you're right to highlight the financial concerns. I think they were uh, at the forefront of, of the decision that's had to be made really. Well, absolutely. I mean, when we break it down, we look at missing out on gate receipts, you know, food and drink uh, sales, merchandise. And I think I'm right in saying that at the moment they can have members of staff and, and players on furlough. But if the season did come back, they'd, they'd technically be working. So you can't use that furlough scheme as well, can you, in, in that case? Yeah, well, it's, it's, in, it's very complicated in terms of contract issues, as we're going to see with all leagues across the world. I think some leagues will find workarounds. Because, you know, if you look, if you take, for example, Premier League clubs there, I would imagine, I don't know this for a fact, but I would imagine that their contracts run slightly longer because the, the regular season for the National League actually finishes quite a little bit before the, say, the Premier League or the Championship mm. season does. So I think you probably find that most contracts at that level would have expired at the end of April. I think I'm right in saying mm. because the season finishes at the end of April. So I think there would be workarounds for clubs that got into the playoffs every season because they would go into the, the first two weeks of May. But if you're talking about a situation where a season, let's say, let's say for example, the National League had restarted and it restarted in, for argument's sake, June, how that would have worked in terms of contracts. And of course, the big thing here as well is that, as I understand it, the clubs would have continued having to pay the players up until that point. Uh, and, and again, I think that's another issue here is that mm. clubs where money is so... Uh, hard to come by if they're having to pay players for an extended period of time you know it could be the thing that tips them over the edge and I think that's probably one of the main reasons that we've reached the situation we have with the National well, absolutely. I mean, and, and financially as well, there were, there were, I was reading an article saying, oh, the aim in terms of the Football League, which is obviously the, the level above, is to finish the season. But even in the Football League, you were getting clubs saying, well, hang on, if we play the rest of the season, we are likely to go bust because the television, mm. uh, you know, the television money isn't in the same league as the Premier League, where, of course, that is, that is, the, main, yeah. that is the main source of income. And obviously, in the Football League, it doesn't filter down the same... They, they're again. They're having issues. They would have issues with furloughing. It's a bit different, as we say, in the football league. Because I know in the national league, and when I when I went to do non-league coverage, it was quite weird because you'd start the season in the non-league with some clubs, and then and you'd end the season with almost an entirely new eleven, depending on who the club yeah. were. Because again, they're on much shorter contracts. But even in the football league, when you've got players on on season long contracts, you know yearly contracts, that's really difficult to deal with, isn't it? If if they are forced to uh, continue the season, as I say, then players are on furlough. Some of them, I believe, because again, they're not on the crazy money of the Premier League. So, yeah. is it essentially at the moment we're looking at? Okay, you can play the Premier League behind closed doors, do this, finish the season. Possibly, that's not even a guarantee. But anyone below that, you still you, you're risking you're risking some kind of financial security, not just with the non-league, but with with many of the football league. Well, I, I think what this is ultimately going to lead to, if we look maybe slightly further down the line, and I'm I'm kind of isolating football here, but I think it's a wider societal thing. Is that I think a lot of business and 
football is certainly included in this, will be looking at how how it runs itself. You know, the sustainability. Uh, clearly, a, a worldwide pandemic is an incredibly unusual situation. I accept that. But I think there is clubs and other businesses, but we're highlighting football here, they run on a very short-term nature mm. in terms of cash flow. Mm. Uh, and I think if you, know, you have a problem like this, it's almost like you know the self-employed individual. If you've got a self-employed individual who maybe has budgeted for the mm. fact that they may break their leg, let's say, for example, and they can't work for a few months. You know, if they put that money aside, or they're fortunate enough to be in a position where they're able to put money aside, then they can get through that. Mm. But I think if you're always living right up, up to the point where you, if, if anything goes wrong, then you're in trouble. Uh, and I think that, in a nutshell, really is how football has run itself in, in many areas for, for too long. Perhaps it does require a rethink. And, but it, it would be tremendously sad if clubs were to go out of business as a result of this. And I desperately hope that that doesn't happen because, you know, I'm fortunate to cover all levels of football. And, you know, from the, the Champions League and the Premier League down to the National League. And I have to say that it's an absolute pleasure to cover the National League because it gives you particularly in what I do as a commentator, it gives you a different sort of insight. You're able to actually go and talk to managers. You know, many managers would say, come and have a drink, come and have a coffee with us before the game or whatever. And you can sit and do that. And you can ask them about the players and ask them about the tactics, get under the skin of it all. And it's, it's just such a nice thing to do. I, I, some people sometimes say it's like real football, isn't it? And I, I don't necessarily, I think real football applies to the Premier League as well, but I understand where they're coming from. Is that you can you can really feel it when when you cover a league like the National League, and yeah, I just really hope that that, that clubs can get through this you know exceptionally uh, difficult time. I really really do. I feel like the I feel like it's almost authenticity, isn't it? Like you say, with, with with that you feel like you're a part of the game as opposed to just simply broadcasting on an event where you're looking on from almost a bird's eye view. You in the non-league it's almost like you're on yeah. the same level you, you as you say you can talk to the manager i mean when i used to when when we used to cover it uh in lancaster you get fans coming up saying oh can we talk about you know something or other and they were all so lovely i mean i was thankful actually because we could have had some real hooligans behind us saying god knows what but thankfully you know the lancaster locals were quite good and uh, yeah no i completely agree a completely different way of looking at and covering football but just but just on the other end of the scale actually really and I know this is quite a bleak um, start to the podcast, so it does get better after this. But um, you know, it's all quite it's all quite uh, dour at the moment. And um, you know, I was reading somewhere that pubs and clubs and attending football matches might not be possible till next year, which which, scared, which was yeah. quite a scary prospect, but a very realistic one as well. So I guess I guess do we need to imagine top flight football? So all of all of Europe's elite leagues do we have to imagine the, the future of those for the time being being behind closed doors is that what we've got to get used to i suspect we do and you know the, the fundamental difference between talked about the fact that national league clubs have said not unanimously but overwhelmingly that they want to end the season here of course the big difference and the reason why premier league clubs won't necessarily say that is because of, of the tv revenues mm. you know that that is that is the big difference mm. and the fact that there's around a three quarters of a billion pounds at stake so I'm led to believe in terms of finishing the season and TV revenues and I, and I think provided that the clubs can keep that TV revenue from what I gather uh, and, and speaking to people within the game you know that that would appear enough to keep the, the Premier League clubs the elite clubs going that TV revenue is everything the game receipts are nice and obviously they'd love to have them 
that the TV revenue is what keeps everything flowing. That's by mm -hmm. far the, the overwhelming factor here. So I think that Premier League clubs, certainly in the short term, could quite probably, when you consider the TV revenue, sustain uh, mm -hmm. themselves just on without gate receipts. And, and I think when you read the science about this, you read the scientific opinion, you know, it becomes more and more abundantly clear that in terms of mass gatherings, we are you know, months away from being able to do that. And depending on which scientists you listen to, you know, it could be anything from a few months to 12 months. That just depends on the individual's opinion. So yes, I think it is something that we as supporters are going to have to get used to in the short to medium term. And who knows, you know, going forwards, we just don't know how this will all pan out in terms of waves of this. And, you know, will it come back and we'll have to go into further lockdown? It's all a very uncertain picture at the moment. And of course that has, you know, people talk about the, re the end of one season. We look at the restart of, of, of the start of the next one, and this is of particular relevance, really, the further you go down the pyramid, because, of course, I say that the Premier League clubs aren't so reliant on gate receipts. Well, clubs at particularly at you know, League One, League Two and National League level, they are way more reliant on gate receipts. You know, for a National League club, that is their greatest source of income. So if they weren't able to play in front of the crowds for, say, six months, you know, that creates then a whole another issue when we start getting into the, the the realms of can it be sustainable can can it keep going and i really really hope that they can find ways to make it sustainable well yeah no i i completely agree with everything you've just said and again that there's a there's a massive scale we're looking at here in terms of like i mean in, in terms of yourself and in terms of other journalists and people in the sports media industry I, I suppose it is kind of important that there is some action to have because you know journalists can't keep reporting on Troy Deeney's favourite kind of aftershave. They need to find some kind of, you know, some, some kind of thing to, com to commentate on and to cover because yeah. it's not just people, I suppose, even in, in sport that have been affected in terms of the jobs of the footballers and so forth. There's a whole industry that, that rely on covering this and, and rely on, on stories and interviews and so forth. Yeah. So I guess for them and the credibility of sports journalism, it's important that something is going ahead even during this pandemic. Yeah, I mean, if, if you're asking me to speak from a sort of a selfish point of view, then yeah, absolutely. I mean, people's incomes have, have been completely put on hold. You, you'll find that uh, a lot of the, I mean, I've worked in, in this kind of line of work all my working life. And, mm. you know, the vast majority of people who work within, say, TV sport will be self-employed. You know, I'm, mm. I'm not just talking about commentators and presenters. I'm talking about um, cameramen, riggers, uh, people who, who will work in the background in a studio in, a, in what we would call a gallery. Um, the, the, the vast majority of these people are self-employed and, and, and a lot of them will have found that their incomes will have basically stopped because I mean, I won't get into the complexities of, of the system that's been rolled out by the Chancellor in terms of keeping people in pets so that people have some money, but there are certain people working within that industry who would fall through the net in that respect. People who, for example, are directors within limited companies. They, they, they pretty much fall through the net, really. There's only a very small amount of money they can claim. So, yeah, I mean, it, it affects everybody in, in that respect. And um, everybody clearly wants it back as soon as possible. But it's one of those things in life where, you know, everybody's got to try and balance economic, societal and medical concerns all at the same time. And it's tremendously difficult. And, and, I, and I feel for those who've got to make the big decisions in all of this, whether that be the Premier League or the government, these are exceptionally difficult decisions that need to be made with a whole host of pressures from every different angle and a, and a lot of opinion out there as well which i understand and a lot of passionate opinion too so it's it's, it's so difficult for, for all concerned um, but you just hope that, that we
we can get things back up and running in a way that that is safe. Uh, I think that has to be the overriding priority, and and it's why people are watching so very closely. Um, how, for example, in Germany, the Bundesliga are looking at coming mm. back. I mean, they, they've they've suggested that they could return in early May. I think that's subject to, to what the uh, the German government says. But you know, I think a lot of people will be watching there. But, but isn't it funny? And it shows you how confused the picture is right now. That just across the border in, in the Netherlands, they've abandoned the season. The top flight season's been abandoned. Mm. So that um, shows you just how everyone's going to have different ways of working with no yeah i mean again it, it, it unprecedented times is the, probably the the most commonly used phrase of the past i don't know a few weeks i've heard i think gary Lineker tweeted it it's been unprecedented times everything's unprecedented times we don't know what's going on everything's crazy that was quite bleak the outlook isn't looking too good but let's go to something a little bit nicer and we'll go back to all the way back to 1999 when you went to nottingham Trent university studying broadcast journalism I have to ask adam i asked Ian, this as well when he was on, he always he was he wasn't really sure when he was growing up what he wanted to go into, in terms of whether he thought because he was quite he, he he told me he was quite a shy person didn't necessarily feel like he'd go into commentary but he did always have a love for sports and he eventually went that route not the university route but um, he, he he did lots of voluntary work got into the BBC and went that way up and fair play to him he's become one of the best commentators in the past thirty years. So you went to university to do broadcast journalism. I mean, that's quite, a, that's quite a specific degree. I mean, I went to do English literature, which basically meant I wanted to be unemployed after, um, after I left. But um, I'm only joking to the people who taught me the brilliant degree. But, of course, when you, do, um, when you do something like broadcast journalism, it's very specific, isn't it? So that tells me that you knew exactly what you wanted to go into from the start, and that was the career for you. When I left school, I knew that I wanted to do something to do with sport and I knew that I wanted to do something that involved words because I just always felt that, you know, they, I knew about sport, knew about football and, and I was a lot better at English than I was at maths. Mm. <laughs> so I just felt like that was a, a logical thing to pursue. And before I went to university, I actually had a year out and I worked not within journalism, but I worked at a newspaper. I worked in various areas of it, predominantly in sales. And it gave, it let me have a look at how a newspaper works. And it let me speak to the journalists involved on a local newspaper. And, and the overriding feelings I got back from them was that they quite enjoyed their job, but it was very low pay at the time. Mm. But what was extreme for a local paper, there was a lot of pressure. There was a lot of hours. And it was amazing how many of them said, you know, think very long and hard as to whether you want to go into this. Well, I decided that I still wanted to go into kind of a journalistic style of career. But I thought, well, maybe I should have a look at broadcasting. Maybe the, 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 sort of the broadcast side of it could be more appealing. And I did and like what I saw and, and like the feedback that I got of people that I talked to. So I decided to do a broadcast journalism degree at Nottingham Trent University, which I really enjoyed, really enjoyed Nottingham. I'd, I'd grew, grown up in Southport near Liverpool. And um, yeah, enjoyed living there and enjoyed the course, did that for three years and you, you learn all aspects of it. So, you know, mm. radio, TV, news, you'd learn how to be a journalist, a broadcast journalist, you'd learn how to film, you'd learn how to do radio editing. It was, so it was, it was like dual in that respect, it was both radio and TV. So it was a good grounding in it and it prepared me well to then go into the, the media industry after that. Absolutely. I mean, you, do, you, you talk about doing quite a lot of uh, newspaper and journalism style roles straight, at, straight on the back, actually, of, of that university degree. But then in 2007, football commentator presenter for Man U TV. I mean, that's sort of maybe a step up 
from that i mean i was talking to ian about when he made the bbc for the first time he was he felt like that was kind of the verification is like yes i've made it i've gone from you know doing the odd job and doing voluntary and getting paid to going to an established place of work to do to do his to hone his craft to then go on to sky sports was man utv one of those where you thought right that's that that's the elevation from what i've been doing and maybe this is another you know a step up onto greater things well, it was, I have to say that the way, a lot of people take different routes. Uh, I always say no commentator really ever prepares in the same way. And I think it's very similar in terms of the routes that people take. I mean, if I rewind a little bit, I mean, the first thing that I did after leaving university was I worked on what's called RSLs, which is restricted service licenses, which are basically when a radio, uh, a company gets a radio license uh, on a temporary basis to test whether the public want them to do a full-time radio station in that area and whether that the company involved want to base them. So it's like a three-month test period. And I remember starting out just in, in Torbay and Barrow. I lived in Barrow for a month and Torbay for a month, worked in a caravan, broadcasting on there. And then off the back of that, I then got my first full-time job in radio where that was really, for me, where I got a fantastic ground. And look, I was lucky to work with the, my boss in that first radio station was an ex-commentator called Tony Delahunty, who really gave me a good in fact it was him that first said i want you to have a go at commentating and i did everything there it was just it was a lovely small local radio station very successful in the area and i did everything i presented i read the news i went out and got the news i football commentary football reporting outside broadcasts and really just for three years did absolutely everything you could think you could do in radio Uh, and then from there I, i went freelance in 2006 and then worked in newsrooms, predominantly in radio, right across the East Midlands, did that. And then I started to do more football reporting. I worked for Radio City covering Tranmere. I did Wigan Athletic for Wish FM. Uh, MUTV, as you just mentioned, was another thing that came along at that time where I started doing stuff for them and started to then gradually get more into TV. And MUTV was part of that. I also did other club type stuff. That's a great way in for young mm. commentators in terms of um, learning how to do TV is to work for club TV stations. Um, so, for example, I worked for a company who produced programmes for Everton and Portsmouth and one or two others as well and, and started doing things like that. Then gradually worked up again and started doing world feed commentaries for UEFA. And it's just a very, very gradual, gradual process, learning you trade, making you mistakes. Uh, and then eventually, you know, if I, I go all the way up to 2013 when BT Sport launched. Uh, and I was very fortunate that they like what they heard when I sent them a demo and, and gave me an opportunity. Uh, and I'll always be so thankful for that, that the, the guys there that gave me a chance and, and hopefully you know, I've made the most of that and um, really look to push on again. But it's tremendously competitive, tremendously demanding. You've got to be in it for the long haul. You've got to be able to accept that doors are going to get slammed in your face all the time. Uh, and you've got to be just really, really dedicated to, to what you do and, and that journey. So if you look at it from when I started uni in 1999, so when BT launched in 2013, that's 14 years of, of really very, very gradually working your way up the ladder. Mm. No, I mean, that, that's, that's fascinating, really. You, you managed to cover them 14 years so efficiently. And I mean, if it was me, we'd be here for three and a half hours and I'd just be talking about everything. But, you know, that, that, was, that was really concise and really good. And I'd just like to say, actually, you mentioned when you went into commentary, when, when you went from newsroom to journalism, and then you were into commentary on the advice of one of your old bosses. How when could you look back on those first commentaries and, and compare them to now and think, God, there's been such a transition in terms of how you've developed? Because one of the things I f- found when I first did one or two commentaries, and obviously not on the same scale as you, but when I did them, 
I'd like I like to think I can talk quite a lot, but ninety minutes of of constantly being focused on the ball, following the action completely, it's very hard, isn't it? It's it's funny because I remember when I did my first commentary, it was um, it was Cambridge United against Mansfield Town at, at uh, the Abbey Stadium, and it, I remember thinking my first game I could do with just something quite calm here. You know, nothing major <laughs> happened in the first ten minutes, and I remember Mansfield. I think I think I'm pretty certain it was either three two or four three. I think it was three two to Mansfield. They ended the game with nine men. Keith Curl had a confrontation on the pitch at half time with a policeman. Uh, it was absolute chaos and I just, I just remember thinking at, at the end of that game I love this I've absolutely got the book for this but before the game I remember uh, I asked a, a, someone I knew who, who'd done a lot of commentary just for some advice and in terms of what you just said there about talking they just said if you were if you were if you'd fallen off a cliff and you were holding on by your fingertips you, you wouldn't let go would you and I said mm. well no obviously I wouldn't no. so he said no. Well, just don't stop talking then. Mm. <laughs> and that was <laughs> that was kind of decent advice for, for radio. But then, of course, then you get into the differences between radio and TV mm. commentary and how you have to learn that there are very big differences between the two as you sort of um, work between the two as I ended up work, working mm. in, in television as well. But so, yeah, I, I, I remember as well another guy who, who I worked with when I was a very young commentator who was a commentator themselves and they they used to have to have somebody else drive part of the journey home because they were so exhausted <laughs> from everything they'd given in terms mm. of the commentary that they were scared they'd fall asleep at the wheel so I never quite suffered that badly but it does it can really take a lot out of you particularly radio commentary um, you get mm. more used to it over the years and maybe it doesn't affect you quite so bad but yeah it's a uh, I love it. It's a great buzz. Radio commentary was my first love. I, I just love the fact that people are, literally every word you say is painting a picture for people. Every word you say, particularly even the way that your voice goes ever so slightly up and down, that, that can be the difference between somebody who's casually listening in their kitchen and then if you're, the, the pitch of your voice slightly changes, mm. they're, they're, they're out of their kitchen and they're, you know, they're, they're listening to the radio. And I, and I think that's wonderful. It's, it's a real privilege as a broadcaster, I think, to have that level of influence over somebody who's listening to a, a you know, coverage of a sport that they love. No, absolutely. I mean, you, you hit that right with the, with, the, with the variation in tones. I mean, w there's nothing more satisfying, I imagine, because even I got a buzz with a, with a perfectly good goal, goal call. Oh, God, that sounds so wrong in my Northern accent. I'm switching. Goal call. Goal call. I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, when you get that spot on, and I'll, I do change my voice slightly when I've done it, I mean, there's no better feeling in the world, is there, when there's a, a, maybe a 30-yard howitzer from someone from, you know, just rifling it top corner. You've said the name. You've got the elongation on the name. It sounds perfect. I mean, you, as you say, you talk about buzzers. There's, there must be no greater buzz than absolutely nailing a goal call. And, and by contrast, I suppose there must be a bit. There must be not much of a greater sense of disappointment than making a bit of a, a mess of a goal call because sometimes you might not be quite on yeah. the same wavelength. Yeah, I can remember when I was first starting out and. I think one of the, the ways that you become better at anything, and I can only speak for what's been my profession or my work in life, is, is broadcasting. I think you have to be your biggest critic, for one. And I think that you also have to religiously listen back to what you do and you have to watch back what you do as well because that's the only way that you get better. And nobody, if, you're, if you really want to be you know, very good at what you do, you have to be really dedicated. And I think that you have to be your biggest critic, as I said. And and really listen back and I used to do that a lot and I can remember if I got something wrong particularly as you've said with a goal call or, or something like that I can remember just 
savagely beating myself up for days and days and days. Um, I think I've got better at that over the years because I think from experience tells you that anyone can make a mistake in any given moment. It's just about learning from it and, and making sure that you, you make them as, as infrequently as possible. But yeah, you're right in terms of when you feel like you've, you've got a, a call on the goal right. It is. It's a great feeling. It's, it, the whole job is, is it's just a great buzz. I think it's why I'm missing it so much at the moment because every time you do the job, every time you cover a game, it, it is. It's a buzz. It's an adrenaline rush. And, it, and it's something you can't really replicate. A bit like a player would say, you can't replicate scoring a goal. But I think sometimes as well as a commentator, you can think that maybe you've nailed something and then you watch it back and you think, you know what, actually, I took too much there. Or mm. equally, you can think you've not nailed something and then maybe watch it back and think, you know what, that was actually better than I thought it was. Mm. I always remember one that always sticks in my mind was the playoff final between Tranmere and Boreham Wood for the National League covering it for BT a couple of years ago. It was an incredible game. And I remember the, um, the winner by James Norwood. I remember commentating at the time and it was one of those crazy games where so much happened and at the end of the match it was all a bit of a blur. And I just remember thinking after the final whistle had gone and everything, you know, we'd gone off there. I just remember thinking, I'm not sure I did that winning goal justice. Do you want to I, replicate I'm just not it sure right now? <laughs> I'm off at the minute. <laughs> I, I just, I just, I just didn't feel like I'd done it justice. And do you know what? The, the, the interesting thing was is that I can honestly say, hand on heart, that I have never had a reaction to a goal more than I did from Tranmere supporters mm. for that goal. Mm. You know, saying that you know, they'll remember what I said forever. These Tranmere, and I, it's funny that at the time I thought, oh, I'm not sure, quite sure I did that justice, but then. It, it was a very simple goal call. It wasn't one where there was, you know, a, a lot of, you, you feel that filled every second. And I think that's a, a, a big lesson for me as a commentator. One that I've tried to learn over the years that very, very often in this job, less is more. And that was a, definitely an example of that where less was, was more. Well, absolutely. I remember you're absolutely spot on in terms of your voice or, or a commentator's voice staking in the narrative of, of a fan base. I mean, when Burnley went into the, Premier League for the first time when Wade Elliott put the ball in the top corner. I think myself and many Burnley fans who were who were watching that and, and look back to it always remember Bill Leslie's call for that because it was an absolute peach of a I mean brilliant goal, brilliant call, and you know, and, and obviously Martin Tyler for Sergio Aguero. So you're absolutely right. I think certain voices will resonate with a with an entire fan base and of course yourself yourself in that with Tranmere as well. Lots 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 on there. Uh, we will come back to career in a second, but just to deviate slightly from that, we'll have a bit of a throwback into um, into the early 2000s. So tw- 2000, I think it's the no- they call that the noughties, don't they? Should have really researched yeah. that. They do fantastic. Uh, it's a bit <laughs> of a it's a bit of a. I, I wasn't sure, but I'm glad I'm right. Uh, so the noughties era, 2000, 2000 to 2009, was an era I grew up in. You were starting the commentary business, the, the journalism business, straight off, off the back of university. So quite a big era for both of us. Just before we go into this, actually. Was there anyone in the nineties, or I, I, you know, in your teenage years, who you, who were, who were your real heroes? Then, who did you look at and think, oh, I love these players? So, I mean, who were you a Nottingham Forest? You should be a Nottingham Forest supporter, really. No, I mean, I, I've I've lived half my life in in the northwest, and I've lived half my life mm. in in Nottinghamshire. So, mm. I've, I've, I suppose you know, I've, I, I followed I followed Mansfield because they're my lo- local team. They were the first team I started mm. covering. Always got a soft spot for mm. for Forest. Um, you know the Merseyside clubs will always watch out for Southport was my, mm. my local team. I've always had a, a love of Italian football. So I'm a, I'm a bit all over the place really mm. in terms of 
of who I follow and, and, and the leagues that I follow have always been a little bit like that. But no, mm. Forest is, I tell you what, I would love Forest to be back in the Premier League. Yeah. I have to say that. I mean, it's, it's my sort of local big club. That would be absolutely fantastic, and I love commentating there as well. It's it's fantastic the city ground, but uh, no, they're 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 not they're, they're not my team, so to speak. Though. I'm just glad you didn't say Man United because I mean, so many people that just sort of deviate to that. I have nothing against Manchester United. If you live in Manchester, that's absolutely fantastic. However, it does annoy me sometimes when people, oh yeah, I just, just supported Man United. Why? Oh, they were doing so well in uh, the various competitions. No, I'm glad you said Mansfield and I'm glad you said other clubs. But anyway, on to the 2000s. I mean, for me, I think, I think, I think in the noughties, there was it was like an amazing, I know I was growing up in it. And as I say, you were going into the, the industry then. But for me, that was an amazing decade of just some absolute superstars that, that, that it's always nice to reflect back on there's no real better time than now I don't think so I've come up with about oh, I don't know 26 players and we're going to do a 1-2-11 of our of our sort of established best decade 11 I'll probably miss one or two off so if anyone wants to you know send hate mail they can do I think I think I've picked out some of the best names per position I'm going to let you have the final say on some of these so from that era, for me, the two keepers that stand out, I think, are Buffon and Casillas, both legendary yeah. goalkeepers of the time. I personally think one was... I, I always had a preference for one over the other, but I'll, I'll let you decide. Who would you go for for that keeper of the decade? Well, as I've just said to you, I do have a fondness for Italian football, and I think that maybe that makes me a little bit biased here, but I think I'd have to go with Buffon. For that I, one, um, I, I completely what, agree. What a presence in the game! Mm. Yeah, what, I, I, what a presence in the game that he's been. No, he has. I mean, Casillas was also an, a, a legend of a of a man. But I yeah. did think with, I, I there were occasions when I'd watch Casillas, and as as amazing a goalkeeper as he was, I always thought there was a little chink in his armour somewhere. I always thought sometimes maybe on crosses, mm. he wasn't quite as effective as Buffon, not quite as commanding. He had the he had all the confidence in the world to come out and claim you know, crosses and come out and deal with danger. But I always felt Buffon was a bit more, you felt a bit more confident with him doing it than Casillas. Maybe yeah. because Buffon yeah. was taller, more physic, you know, more physically uh, dominating. Casillas was quite small for, for a goalkeeper. It was six foot, six foot one. Buffon really, really big. And I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I, I think one of the things that I've always admired about Buffon and particularly the, the, the Juventus team that's, you know, in terms of their prolific run of success that started under Conte, I always admired the collective defensive unit and the mm. attitude. I always remember so often seeing Buffon and Bonucci and Chiellini when they just simply didn't concede a goal. You know, it was not behind for a corner. The three of them would almost be, well, they would, they would be in a huddle and celebrating like they'd scored a goal. And I absolutely love that. I, I love that attitude and I love his mentality. I think for me in sport and in football, mentality is... Uh, under discussed uh, I think it's absolutely cre- if I was a, mm. you know, in charge of recruitment at a, at a big club I, I would research as much as I possibly could into players mentality not just their ability and I'm sure they do do that because I think it's so important and, and Buffon I'm not saying Casillas' mentality isn't no. great, but I've seen a lot more of Buffon and, and I think his mentality is, is amazing yeah two, two, two elites of the game I do I'd like to say as well there was a, I think there was a save in the final of the 2003 Champions League final Buffon, I think it was Inzaghi, I'm not 100% sure, but he did a reflex save from six yards that he made it look so easy. It was absolutely, it's one of the best saves I've seen in the Champions League final. I mean, yeah. right now you've got the positioning, the leadership and everything from Buffon, but obviously he's a lot slower because of his age. But then he had everything, didn't he? As we say, the complete package. Yeah. Okay, yeah. 
One word answer for all the defenders, and then we'll do a quick summary. So at right back, Lom or Cafu? We're thinking um, prime years as well in, in, that, in that decade. That's tough. One word answer for the defenders, and then we'll do a summary. I'll, I'll go with Cafu. Cafu. Good one word answer there, Adam. Terry or Terry or Puyol? John Terry or Carlos Puyol? Puyol. Maldini or Cannavaro? Oh, <laughs> Cannavaro. And I think I think this this, this left back uh, is is quite good in parallel with right back. So Roberto Carlos or Ashley Cole? Ashley Cole. Yeah, I think that I think if you pick Cafu for balance, it makes sense to pick Cole and vice versa. Yeah. If you pick yeah. Lam, probably Roberto Carlos. Okay, those Agreed. four, those four. Um, yeah, I mean, my I'll, I'll I'll be quick with summary. Yeah, I think you've picked. Yeah, attack, attacking a Cafu, more defensive-minded Ashley Cole. Carlos Puyol, I think I'd have over Terry. Maldini or Cannavaro is going to be a, a very divisive one. But I think Maldini did... I think he won the Ballon d'Or in the 90s, not the noughties. Cannavaro did win the Ballon d'Or in the noughties. Go on then. I, I, that's a hard one. I'll let, you dis- I'll let you explain why you picked <laughs> as you picked. Go on. Well, I think you're right in terms of, of the balance. I mean, look, we're, we're talking here about absolute elite level players. Yeah. You know, you can quite yeah. if, 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 if this was caught within yeah. a court, we could quite easily make a great mm. case for either. Mm. But, uh, mm. Yeah, they just I, I always I think Ashley Cole. I think it's widely accepted that he was the best left back in the world mm. for, for for quite some time. I think that I always judge or try to judge what you might term as great teams and and, and great players on longevity because for me that is the greatest test of of anybody's true ability is longevity can you can how long can you cut it at the absolute highest level mm. and you know how much can you win in that time and whilst all of those players are well decorated i just think the consistency that cole has you know particularly for, for arsenal and chelsea the, mm. the size that he played in and, and i think as well that whilst the epitome of the modern fullback in terms of he could get forwards. I think he was also pretty good defensively as well. And, and whereas you know, there are other defenders who Roberto Carlos may be being one of them, who we talk a lot about the crosses he could whip in, the free kicks that he could hit. We talk less about maybe him defensively. And I think that perhaps plays a part with me and with, with, with Ashley Cole in terms of I mean, Cannavaro and what he did with, with Italy as a national side as well around that time in you know, the mid the mid noughties was absolutely incredible. You know, that yeah. mm. Nestor as well, what a mm. player he was. Mm. So, and Maldini's longevity with Milan, mm. one club man, absolutely incredible. But uh, you pick some good players there, I tell you. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I, I, like I say, I mean, that decade is, is one where you had, it's very different because that was the uh, very elite Milan side, wasn't it? I mean, the nineties and the noughties yeah. Milan were outstanding and it's a shame they've they've regressed as they have and also you obviously had the two spanish giants we had the main four in england they were literally i mean arsenal peak arsenal united liverpool chelsea were phenomenal arsenal under wenger where they were doing very well obviously the invincibles uh jose Mourinho uh, inspiring chelsea to the rise that they had sir alex ferguson's man united and of course liverpool under rafa benitez at two champions league finals so you know yeah. that they, they Again, phenomenal. Okay, this one. Defensive. Okay, three midfielders. Four, mm, three or four midfielders, depending on what formation it is. So it's either a 4-1-2-1-2, maybe a 4-3-3. This is quite hard, I think. So, Makalele or Vieira? One word answer, and then we'll discuss. Vieira. Mm, 
Ooh. Okay. Uh, this is this is in three because I was really struggling. Uh, so I've put these into three categories. So Zidane, Xavi, or Seydorf. This is all. I know you said one word, but this is all very dependent on how you start, how your team's going to play, isn't it? True. True. In terms true. of just who I'd like the best out of those three players, Zidane. Thank yeah, I was happy you went with Zidane. Okay, <laughs> uh, classic trio of English players: Scholes, Gerrard, or Lampard. Gerrard. Mm. And depending on this, could be a four-three-three or a four-one-two-one-two. Kaká or Ronaldinho. Pri- <laughs> in their prime. Mm. <laughs> mm. This is fifty-fifty. I, I, I just, I just, yeah, I just. I just love everything about the way that this guy played the game. It, just his whole personality. So I'll say Ronaldinho. I knew it. Yeah. Okay. So looking back at those then, so we've got sort of a 4-1-2-1-2 there or a 4-3-3, depending on how the other two go. Yeah. I mean, Makaleli Vieira, Makaleli was given, they, they called the defensive midfielder Claude Makaleli role. So naturally you went with the other person. Yeah. Um, D- different types of player though, really. Yeah. In yeah, some ways. Yeah. Yeah. I think Vieira is a bit more technical, maybe, I would have said. Makaleli, mm-hmm. uh, very much. Well, I suppose you could say almost model Bangalore Kante now in, in, in some ways. Um, that he was, some ways, yeah. In yeah. some ways. Not, obviously not quite the same player, but yeah, there, there, is, there is that attraction. But yeah, Vieira as well. Also, personality on the pitch, wasn't he? Just, uh, yes. just him and, I mean, I, I don't know if you've seen Keenan Vieira, Best of Enemies. I mean, that's a phenomenal programme and it yeah. tells you all you need to know about both of the players. The only reason I didn't pick Keen yeah. actually, was because it was mainly the 90s, you know, for Roy Keane yeah. as opposed to the noughties. Mm. So that, that sort, of, sort of that out. Yeah, Zidane, poetry in motion probably on the, on the, in midfield. Yeah, just a, a glorious player to watch. Just so elegant, physically imposing as well, mm. which mm. you could say the same about Vieira because... You know, we look a bit further forwards um, and the focus became much more on the small technical players. And I think mm. that showed how football changed is that mm. players like Vieira uh, and Zidane, mm. you know, they, particularly Zidane, obviously, mm. in, this, in this respect, they combined that real elegance, that technical quality with also being imposing physically and, mm. and real athletes. You know? mm. and, I, and I think that the, the, the sort of the fashion, if we just look slightly further forward beyond them, certainly changed in that respect. Barcelona and and Guardiola were obviously an absolutely mm. tiki tacker was fundamental to all of that. But I really admired Zidane for so many different reasons. Mm. Uh, yeah, ele- elegance is the word that, that, that really springs to mind when I think about him. Yeah. No, I, a tremendous, tremendous player. Almost, well, the, per- the perfect all-round midfielder, I mean, in many ways, could do the lot. Mm. Gerard seems to be the answer everyone seems to be going for now because it used to be a really big debate didn't it and now everyone just says Gerard um, I, I think we yeah I think it's more I, I think for go on I was, sorry I was just going to say that I think for me when we look back now at, at, at Liverpool at that time Gerard's ability I mean I, I remember tweeting only a few weeks ago when there was a rerun of the Champions League final from 2005 on mm. And it really, it struck me at the time, obviously, but it, when you look back, it really does emphasise just how big an effect that Steven Gerrard had on that Liverpool team of that entire sort of era in that, mm. you know, they would never have been anywhere near the final without him. And they mm. certainly wouldn't have won the final without him. The, you know, this is a player who in the final stages of that game was at right back and absolutely mm. out on his feet. Mm. He scored the goal that had got them back into it. And I think in a microcosm, that's summed up 
the level of influence that he had on that team. And he, he's such a rarity, Gerard. In the you know, you talk about a midfielder who's able to do everything. Uh, I I just don't see anybody anything like him in the game right now. The closest that I've seen in covering football in the last ten years or so, and he he's nowhere near him, but he's I could sort of see similarities would be Rajin Ingolan in that that real all action can put his foot in, but can score goals, can pick a pass, can get from box to box. And it's very hard to see anybody who's able to do what Gerard does. He was an absolutely phenomenal footballer. To be slightly controversial, I would actually say that in some ways, I think Liverpool was so reliant on him during that time that I actually think as a club, it might even have held them back in terms of their development as a team. Because I think a little bit like you see with any club that has one absolute standout player, I think they can become too reliant on them. And it, and it prevents others from growing around them and, and mm. developing perhaps as much as they would do. And I think in some ways that could perhaps have held Liverpool back a little bit. But what a player, just absolutely phenomenal footballer, really, really was. Yeah, potentially holding Liverpool back. That's our, that's one of our 20-minute segment uh, highlights now for the uh, promotion. So you expect <laughs> some bashing after. Um, yeah. no, it's a very good point. As long as though. it's taken in context. <laughs> yeah. When's it ever taken in context? Never taken in context. Don't, don't be silly. Anyway, I, I actually, I'm glad you mentioned that final, actually, because I, I also watched that final. Uh, a rerun of that final uh, such is the case that there's nothing much football related now and Kakar was absolutely unbelievable in that final even though they went out three uh, yeah, they, they went the out on penalties oh my god the uh, unbelievable and uh, I mean to be the fair every, yeah. everyone said the pass but the finish whew, I mean it was it, yeah, on his standing foot incredible yeah but the pass yeah absolutely incredible I also watched against United again where he was absolutely amazing against the Sir Alex Ferguson United team at Old Trafford I think they won 3-0. And two of the goals he scored were phenomenal. He was just... This is just my counter-argument to Ronaldinho because that's the, that's the popular answer, obviously. Growing up, Ronaldinho, he was. He'd smile on his face. Unbelievable skills. I don't think, you know, probably rivals anyone in the modern day for skills with a football. However, I think for ability to... I think, in the, I think at their pomp, in their elite, I do think Kakar was the better player. I do think that because I think he was AC Milan. He was, you know, when they were doing so well, he would, and Man City were linked with him, Real Madrid were linked with him. I actually think if he had gone to Manchester City, he might have, you know, I think would have seen more, a better Kakar than the one that went to Real Madrid and seemingly got lost in a, in a club that mm. spent so much on so many players. And he just became, a, he just became a sum of the parts in many ways. He, his, his brilliance was kind of lost. But in that Milan team, when, you know, the iconic where he, I belong to Jesus shirt and he's in Old Trafford and he, you just realise this guy is a phenomenon. But I, obviously, you know, you can argue everything against that with Ronaldinho, who was, you know, he, he went to the Hogwarts School of Football, didn't he? He was just, he was just amazing with, it, with, it, with, his, with his tricks. Well, they were, you know, even in terms of their backgrounds, the, the, how they grew up, the, they're so different, aren't they? Yeah. Ronaldinho and Kaká and mm. their approaches, not just to the game of football, but training, life, very just complete contrasts. Mm. But still both incredibly blessed in terms of the, the natural talent and ability that they had. I would argue, as I think probably most people would, that maybe Kaká was the more disciplined uh, of the two of them. Certainly would have been more um, attuned, more adapt more suited to playing in Italian football than, mm. than Ronaldinho mm. would have been where the, you know, the, the tactical requirements on a player are much greater than perhaps they would be in, 
in the Premier League or, mm. or La Liga, where, of course, he did, he did so well with Barcelona. So, yeah, I suppose you, you're looking... You're looking at a real stark contrast there. So I suppose it was a good question to ask to two very different uh, types of personality as well as different players. Yeah. I, I 100% know if this went to a Paul Ronaldinho would win because he can't. It's really hard to, to yeah. argue the other side. But, you know, as we say, two phenomenal players. All, well, they are, they're all phenomenal players. So if we go on to the strike force, this is quite an interesting one, I think. Messi... Young Messi, so what we're looking at, 2004 up to about 2009, so as he was growing and rising with Barcelona. Phenomenal then even, not quite where he was now or had been for the past Mm. decade. Still phenomenal numbers and uh, scored some amazing goals. Or prime Thierry Henry at Arsenal. Well, I think the key word that I have to go on there is prime. Mm. And if you're talking prime, then... Mm. Thierry Henry, mm. it's a measure of just how good he was in his prime that I would mm. pick him up oh, a developing, uh, a developing Messi. Uh, Thierry, Thierry Henry is probably, along with Messi, the best mm. player I've ever seen in the flesh, ever mm. watched live. I remember mm. it was one of the first radio games I commentated from. In fact, I think it was the first ever Premier League commentary I did for radio. Mm. Uh, and uh, Arsenal absolutely took Aston Villa to a part at, at the mm. old Highbury. It was the one and only time I went to Highbury. And it was an incredible day, and Henri was just unplayable that mm. day. He, he just toyed with them, ripped mm. them to, to shreds at a Premier League defence. And uh, what a player he was. Mm. Just, just I mean, you've, you've seen as much of him as I have. You, you know where I'm coming from. and mm. yeah, Tremendous. Just a, 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 you, you, you could make a, a strong argument that... The, and I know there's a strong competition here, but you could make a very good argument that he's the best foreign player ever to play in the Premier League. And, and that's, a, that's yeah. a, a huge compliment, I would no, suggest. I wouldn't argue with that in the slightest. Yeah, tremendous player. It meant, do you think that, um, he was... No, you're not going to say he was robbed because that's controversial and another clickbait thing. But he was... He had an incredible season the year Ronaldinho won the Ballon d'Or. Do you think maybe... He could have been Henri, or do you think? I mean, I've been taught a few people tell me that they feel he was robbed in the season where Ronaldinho won the Ballon d'Or. If you just look at his overall influence on the club, was he unfortunate? I'm not going to say that specific season, but was he unfortunate not to have got a Ballon d'Or, do you think, given how much he, he yes. contributed to us? Yes, yeah, absolutely. Because mm. he, he, I think sometimes only in, in hindsight are players truly appreciated mm. for, for what they were, and, and I sort of talk a little bit. Uh, about Gerard in that respect, it's funny. You know, this will right, raise eyebrows. I know, but I was only thinking the other day how um, someone like Edin Dzeko, who mm-hmm. people, a lot of people see as a figure of fun. Mm-hmm. I think when people look back when he's retired five years from now, or whatever, we'll look back and think, what a good player he was. You know, sixty years now on the all-time list of goal scorers for a good mm-hmm. size of Roma, um, had a, a good strike rate in, in the Premier League not fashionable because he's a target mm. man in an era where technical players have been much greater appreciated. But I think there's so many players you look at and you think, yeah, maybe it's within hindsight that we appreciate them that little bit better. But Henri was, he, he wasn't, he was surrounded by so many star players, so many elegant players in that arsenal. Mm. Another one I absolutely adored watching was uh, Robert Pires. Mm. What, what a fantastic player he was to watch. And then, you know, someone like Dennis Bergkamp as well. So, you know, Henri was very different in terms of, although he played in the same era as someone like Steven Gerrard, where Steven Gerrard was stand 
absolutely the standout player at Liverpool, the player that they couldn't do without. Mm. Um, whereas Henri, whilst he was utterly brilliant, was not necessarily the standout no. at Arsenal. You know, there, mm. there were you might put him at the top, but very close behind him, there was a whole list of other players who were so influential. And maybe that's another reason why perhaps he didn't always get the the absolute maximum attention that perhaps in terms of elite awards that, that, that maybe he deserved. No, absolutely. A very good argument there. Last place. Oh, that, well, this is quite an interesting one. Re- Cristiano Ronaldo for Manchester United throughout his time was in, in the notice and he had one season at Real Madrid, also sporting Lisbon. Or the original Ronaldo during his time at <laughs> Inter Milan. I think he had one season and I think it, we're looking mainly in his Real Madrid years where he obviously had a lot of success there. And of course, I think he had a remarkable 2002 World Cup where he scored a number of goals for Brazil. So people actually said the best that Brazilian Ronaldo was at his best at Barcelona during that season where he, I think he scored about 35 goals. Mm. That was actually in the 90s. And after a slightly disappointed end to his Inter Milan career, he was excellent at Real Madrid, of course. Phenomenal mm. striker. But maybe not quite at the peak level in his, in his club career that he was at Barcelona, but still phenomenal. That versus Cristiano Ronaldo, a player who was still in contention for the Ballon d'Or in his United time, but still not mm. quite at his peak because obviously Real Madrid, he was, his numbers are unbelievable. So who would you go with there? Mm. We described two players who were just, one's just come out of their peak and, and one's just about to go into it, aren't you? Mm. So you, you're it's two players who are not quite at their peak. So it's that makes that one really hard to call that. I, you know, it's funny, isn't it? I, and it just shows you how you shouldn't always judge players too quickly. As, mm. as Because in this world we live in right now where everything's so instant and everyone's got a strong opinion, nobody ever seems to have an opinion that's like in the middle. And mm. it, it's either, and it goes for everything in life, whether it be politics, footballers, everyone mm. seems to be either all over mm. this way mm. or all over that way. And I think mm. there is a lot of the time, there is actually a gaping space in the middle where yeah. uh, people don't get their opinion quite right. And remember, Ronaldo, particularly, you know, at the start of his Manchester United career, he was a figure of fun. You know, people mm. laughed at this guy. Mm. This was the, you know, the, the, the one-trick pony. He, he, all he could do was step overs. Mm. And my goodness me, how, how he proved them wrong. Um, uh, and I think, you know, if you look at his early stages of his Manchester United career, you would never, ever have predicted the, the no. monster that he would have gone on no. to, to become. Mm. So I, in terms of picking one, so hard this um i loved i'd I'd probably say the manchester united ronaldo in the the, the final the final two seasons Mm. i think particularly at the end of his manchester before he went to real madrid he was becoming the the absolute colossus that that we saw but as you said ronaldo the brazilian ronaldo was an unbelievable talent a fantastic center forward Mm. we've never really seen anything truly like him again since that maybe passed his peak by then. Um, mm. But it's a really hard one. It could, you, you, it's, it's an absolute 50-50 guy, it really is. No, I mean... We, it, why don't you have the final call on that one? <laughs> no, no, you're all right. I think I'll... Uh, yeah, I'm, not, I'm not the one being interviewed, so I'll leave that, I'll leave that with you. I mean, I do... I think you might have made the right call, because I remember, I think it was 07-08, and Ronaldo got 31 Premier League goals and 44 in all competitions, which at the time... Exactly, yeah. It's absolutely it mad. Brazilian Ronaldo, when he went to Real Madrid, consistently hitting between 20 or 30 goals, which is, again, really, really good and still still phenomenal. When I say past his prime, I literally mean about maybe 85%, 90% because he was still excellent. 
it was mm. well, I think I think it's when he went to AC Milan. He, I think after he moved from Real Madrid, it sort of the career sort of went yeah. down a little bit from there. But yeah, no, that's a, that's a very good lineup. Uh, I'll be sure to get the graphic designers on that, so we can uh, we can plug that a little bit. And there's some phenomenal players there. You can't really argue, I don't think, with any of those. But as you say, an era of strong opinions. So it'll be it, we'll still get the hate hate mail. So um, can't can't help that though. Go back to um, go back to your career in terms of uh, we we sort of stopped halfway just to have that little segment. You went to BT which again is a new boy on the block actually big rival to Sky Sports now um, I think it used to be Satan to then ESPN then they they were sort of you saw those I think really as a, as a customer in particular as they were like oh yeah the big games are on Sky any of the sort of secondary games they're probably on they're probably on this other one they're on ESPN or Satan so they were never really considered the big rival to Sky Sports BT comes in they really are considered this behemoth that wants to challenge Sky in any way possible and as we say you made a you made a name for yourself on the non-league uh, coverage but also you've done various other things with Champions League Europa League uh, recently Premier League I think you were you're on the Burnley v Aston Villa game weren't you recently I was, yeah. You were on the bill. Yeah. Yeah. You, you were, you yeah. were. I did watch that. And it wasn't a good game. But um, yeah, no, you covered, you covered a lot of things there. I mean, is there any, since you've been at BT, how, how do you feel like your career has sort of deviated? Do you feel like, it, do you feel like you, a, new, a new step? Like we're talking steps before, but was this like the big step? If Man U TV wasn't, is being part of this big project or, you know, which you still are a part of, was that like a, oh, wow, you know, this is finally all my years of work is paying off and be recognised. You know, you look back to sort of, as you've said, it, it was very small steps throughout the, the media industry for uh, 14 years from, from being at university in 99 to BT's launch in, in 2013. And I think you, you always remember sort of what you'd, you'd said, those sort of key moments. And I think for me that the time that I thought this is, I, I finally got, to where, or, or I've got a chance of going where I really want to be, was when I got an email when BT Sport launched in 2013, and, I, and I'd done, you know, I'd sent off the demo and I'd um, hoped to get something back, an opportunity, and I got an email saying that basically I was in their list of commentators they intended to use for their European coverage, the uh, Liga and Bundesliga and Serie A, which they had mm. all the rights mm. to at the time. Mm. And I got that email and I can, I can remember that that's where I was. I can remember everything because it was such a big moment in my life to, to get that. You could, because you have so many doors shut in your face over so many years, you know, you, the emails that you have to send, the people you have to phone. And, and, and it can, you know, if, if you're not a strong personality and you don't necessarily have the real belief in yourself, it can be that sort of thing where you could lose all you lose all enthusiasm really and all hope that you'll ever get to where you want to go and I always kind of thought I always backed myself that I had the ability to get to where I felt I wanted to go and I think that's really important that you've got to have that self-confidence and I always kind of backing myself but I suppose with anybody in any line of work there has to be a limit to it where you mm. think if I've not got to where I want to be by this point mm. I've got to think about doing something mm. else because mm. I, you know I need, and you have the pressures of money as well as I had a young family at the time and needed to be earning more money than I was at the time. And, you know, that email and, and that foot in the door that I got, it, it was one of those moments where I said, right, I've got this chance now and I am going to absolutely make everything I can of this opportunity to make it at a, you know, a national broadcaster and, and be in something from the start. And, mm. and really that was, that's always been so important to me and it's why I was so so pleased and so honoured to be part of the Amazon team, the prime mm. video, I should say, team, 
from the beginning as well because to be in something from the start I, I love that you know to be part of building something is is fantastic and uh, yeah that was a that getting that chance with BT was 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 huge but and then it's it's a little bit like the journey that I had from 99 to 2013 in that once I got in with that chance at BT of course I was a virtual unknown really in terms of so, you know, some of the other names that they were using you know, someone like Ian Dark, for instance, or, or Peter Jury, another fantastic commentator. So then you, you're almost starting at the bottom of another ladder, you know, and then you have to work your way up that ladder as well. And hopefully I've done that over the years at BT. And um, it's just constantly proving yourself over and over and over again. You just yeah. have to keep proving yourself. And I enjoy that. I enjoy the pressure of that. It's great. Well, ladders were meant to be climbed, so obviously um, that's my little yeah. philosoph- philosophical comment for you and anyone who's listening. But I do. You, you mentioned the foreign football that you started with. Actually, I remember the European Football Show was one of my favourite programmes. I thought it was an amazing yeah. Um, yeah. thing that they had together. I was so I was gutted when they decided to pull the plug on that because that was an amazing sort of little setup. Uh, James Richardson. Uh, Julian Laurent, James Horncastle, Rafa Honigstein, yourself, you were quite prominent on the on the commentaries. Um and so and I think it was often he was it was either Serie A or Liga at the in the quarter to eight slot. They covered the Bundesliga yeah. as well. A phenomenal little setup there. So I mean yeah, do I mean what what did you think about that? It was a nice little gig to have. I know you were starting at the maybe the bottom of that ladder, but that was a nice the, the, that had I remember when that was cancelled, there was a little there was a quite a I say a little quite a lot of thousands of people thinking hang on I you know this was an amazing show this is one of the best shows uh of coverages of foreign football I think it was on Sky it was Revista de la Liga or something I'm not sure but they had a, they had a La Liga coverage and BT's foreign coverage was practically unrivaled for many people there was a real disappointment mm. when it was cancelled so it, was it a nice thing to be a part of a setup that had a little niche audience of people that really enjoyed it it was an absolute pleasure and I would say it's one of a real highlight for me. It was when I talk about moving up the ladder, it was something that allowed me to do that as well because, you know, to to, to be able to be a part of that show as, as I became in terms of doing the commentary was just an absolute privilege. And I remember sitting there every time I did it and, I, you know, every single week it was a big game, you know, whether it be PS Le Classique it might be or it might be the Milan Derby, it might be uh, the Derby d'Italia. Mm. Every single weekend, it was a mm. really big game. And that was fantastic for me as, as a young commentator developing at a, at a national broadcaster because it allowed me to do huge games that were of massive importance in those particular leagues, but not necessarily with the pressures that would come with no. covering the equivalent fixture in this country. Mm. So the boss, the bosses at that time, when I was, you know, starting out at BT, I wasn't, as I said, I wasn't an established name like a, like Ian or Peter or, or, or people of that ilk. So they would never put me, for example, on a on a big Premier League mm. game at that time. No. But they could justify using me for a big European game with a smaller audience. So mm. it was great for me because I covered massive football matches without necessarily those pressures so it was great opportunity uh, it was a fantastic show to be a part i mean just to be on the same show as well like james Richardson. i look I, I, what an like amazing a, guy yeah such yeah. a brilliant I presenter mean, I gr- and a nice man as well you know someone who i've worked with quite a few times i've even worked with james on the national league actually mm. over the years but you know it was it was brilliant for me as someone who'd grown up watching football italia in the 90s as a little boy to then end up kind of working on the same show as Jay. I remember the first time that he actually queued to me 
you know, he said, and mm. I'm over to San Siro now where it's uh, Adam Summerton. And I just remember thinking, that is brilliant. Mm. James Richardson's just mm. cute. And, and obviously as time goes on, you get more and more used to it. But I remember at the time thinking, that's that's absolutely fantastic. And I think you have to have, you have to get excited by stuff like that because if you can't get excited by stuff like that, then you're probably in the wrong, you're in the wrong business. But no. yeah, you're right. It was an absolute privilege to, to work on. I loved working on that show, yeah. Well, no, it is, and uh, and you know, BT has gone on as, as we say. They got the Champions League rights, they got the European rights. Real kick in the teeth of Sky, I think, at that point. Uh, and then you were, they were seen as a realistic challenger. But more recently, we've had Amazon Prime come into the equation. They've got the rights. They've had the rights to. Uh, I think it, they had Boxing Day this year, and uh, they had another set of last year. Sorry, that this season, and they had another set of midweek games as well. Uh, so. Uh, Dipping the toes in, I think, is probably the right right way to say uh, how they've how they've how they've gone in this season. But I just thought it's been it's interesting to see because obviously Ian Dark did it as well. Ian Dark was on the commentaries. Do you see a Netflix? Other streaming services are available, like Amazon Prime. Uh, do you see this kind of style, uh, this on-demand style, as the future? Instead of having dedicated channels, do you think it might be a case of? pressing on the game that you want when it comes on, getting the coverage that way. Is that the way we're looking at? And just sort of to broaden out, is, could we expand that to TV, say, in 10 to 15 years? Would you be surprised if the likes of the TV channels that we, we, we've become accustomed to were replaced entirely with on-demand style services, not just for sport, but for, for all kinds of entertainment? I think with most things in terms of television, it's continually evolving. Nothing in television or the media in, at large tends to stay the same for very long. It's a very fluid type of industry. So I expect that you know there will be plenty of change over the years. And, and I have to say that I think that when BT Sport was launched in 2013, um, I know that I'm probably biased here, admittedly, but I think that they were so refreshing for the whole market because mm. I think it, things have been done in a certain way for a long time, very successfully, I should say, by mm. by Sky. But BT came in and just said, no, we want to do things slightly differently, have our own mm. take on things. And I think that those things have been really successful, the innovation that they've showed, even in terms of, you know, just I covered, for example, the WSL. That's mm. been given fantastic sure. coverage. Incredible. Um, the amount of female pundits that we have now as well. So things are developing all, all, all the time in the TV industry. And I think a lot of it is consumer-led as well. And I think that if a consumer... Uh, on mass are saying that they want something, then I think it's very hard to resist that tide of why would you? And I have to say from working on the very first Amazon games, uh, I keep saying Amazon Prime Video, mm. working on the very first Prime Video games, the reaction to those was in incredibly positive. And I think that people really enjoyed having that choice. We live in a world now where choice is king, isn't it? If you want to go into the supermarket, you know, you've got... You've got to stay two metres apart, choices. Adam. Two meters well, you have, you have to do that. <laughs> and not get too close to the other person no. when you're choosing between about no, five or six, seven yeah. or eight different yeah. types of tomato sauce. Yeah. So, you know, we've got choice in all aspects of our life. And I think it's inevitable, really, that that, that comes to football. Now, obviously, a big barrier to this has always been the three o'clock blackout in terms of mm. broadcasters cannot show games. I mean, the amount of times I've been asked, why do you know, why did BT not show the afternoon mm. game from Germany mm. on a, a 3 230 mm. game in Germany? And it's remarkable how many people don't, don't realise the mm. fact that we're not, we're not allowed to. Mm. Um, so I think that's always been a barrier to, mm. to, to that. And, and mm. whether they'll be able to work around that, who knows? But I think in principle, the idea of both being, games being broadcast mm. via the internet, for one, mm. 
and be, games being broadcast so you have multiple choice. I think there's, there is clearly there is clearly a, a future in all that. But I, I suspect that the likes of, uh, of of Sky and BT will also wish to remain very much in the market. Mm. And I think they're proving that with with the investments that they're making into the, into sports broadcasting right now in terms both of rights that they're that they're they're um, purchasing and also infrastructure that, that they're all building as well and it's it's great to to, to have you know such a market in the uk no absolutely absolutely I, I just have to ask before we go on to your team of the season choices adam um, do you ever get do you ever get mistaken for working on a question of sport no <laughs> no 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 no, no. I, th- I mean it's a very it's a very good uh, comparison Marty. matt dawson's a very you know well-groomed man matt I, mean, dawson, I, <laughs> I, I mean i get richard hammond so i think you're winning out of the two of us uh, but uh, i think um, but uh yeah no i mean I, I just had to throw that one in there but anyway um uh, you're not a rugby well actually are you a rugby man are you into your rugby at all no no no, no i'm not no 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 no, no. Egg chasing's never been for me, I'm afraid. No, 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 no. <laughs> but we'll uh, we'll move on to your team of the season picks, actually, because uh, I was I'm happy to yeah. say that we I agreed on most most of these, and you're not too far off Ian either. So we're doing quite good on that score. So talk us through then. I'll leave, I'll leave the floor is yours. In goal, Sheffield yeah, United. Well, 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 I had a, a straight choice really there of, of Pope of Burnley, which you you might have appreciated me going for or. Or Henderson, and I just think that um, you know, what Sheffield United have done this season, particularly defensively, is it's been remarkable. Really, it's the way that they play as well. It's, it's been so interesting to watch. Very unusual style of play, mm. uh, and Henderson's just had a, a fantastic season, and, and he's grown considerably from where he was this time a year ago. I think he's been such a reassuring presence. At the back there, and I just think all things considered, when you look at the clean sheet counts, I think Pope might have one more clean sheet. That he does off the top of my head. Yeah, I think he does. But I just think overall, uh, I mean, Liverpool fans might say, well, Alisson, who's I believe kept the most clean sheets in in the few in a lot fewer games than those. So I think you have to look at the quality of defence in front of Alisson, and maybe that's a factor. And the fact that he's played a lot fewer games as well. But Mm. I just felt all in all, Henderson was was the goalkeeper for me, really. It was for me too, actually. I know uh, I could have gone with Pope, but I do think younger goalkeeper, really impressive in his first season, also very good with his feet. I mean, obviously, as a Burnley fan, I know Nick Pope's very good, but you know he's got years on. He's got a few years on Henderson, certainly, and his kicking leaves quite a bit to be desired. I think most Burnley fans could agree. Phenomenal goalkeeper still, and, and really happy to have him between the sticks. But uh, yeah, Dean Henderson for me, remarkable character for someone so young. And mm. you know, a big future ahead for him, I think. Back for mm. three of the four are basically, you know, a given. And everyone seems to have a different fourth choice in, in the centre-back position next to Van Dijk. You've gone with Basham. Yeah, that that was the hardest one. I did I did have a look at in terms of the fullbacks. I did have a look at Pereira as well at Leicester, who, who I mm. think's had a, a very fantastic good, very season. Very good season. You, you just you just couldn't not pick the Liverpool pair really because that again for a side that has achieved what Liverpool have this season, the fullbacks have been absolutely fundamental to all of that. Mm. Van Dyke, as you said, picks himself. But the you know the, the centre half. I know some people have picked Maguire. I just felt that again I had to look at Sheffield United mm. uh, and. People, you know, they, they've used three centre halves, and as mm. I've already mentioned, that you know, the, the quite unique system that they play. Mm. And I just felt that, you know, when you look at someone like Basham, 
Mm. Uh, McConnell, people might have said, he, I mean, all three centre halves have been absolutely fantastic, but Basham, at the age of the years, I think he's in his early 30s, mm. the experience that he's brought there. But you know, I, I was reading up the statistics here, I've got it in front of me. He's made 61 tackles, winning mm. 35 of them. He's also had 61 interceptions to his name and has won that possession in the opposition third on seven occasions, the best record among all centre-halves mm. in the Premier League. And I think that, I, I just think, I, you, you could make a case maybe for any of those three centre-halves, but I just felt mm. on what Sheffield United have done defensively this season, where they've come from to where they are right now, how fundamental that defence has been to all mm. that, I just felt I had to pick one of those three, and, that, and he's, he's just got the knock. Mm. Well, Ian went with Maguire. I went with Johnny Evans because I think Johnny Evans in particular just, just seems to be, a, I, th- I thought he really elevated Maguire's game while he was at Leicester. And even with Soyuncu, it's like Maguire's never left him anyways um, mm. uh, at, at the moment. I, th- I feel like Johnny Evans is a real steady Eddie at the back, rarely makes a defensive mistake, always shows leadership. And yeah, I think that, that would be mad. But again, that's a really hard one because the, as you say with Basham, you've read the statistics out and you've got, you know, you, you've highlighted the, how well Sheffield United have done. So you can't really argue with any of those. Midfield three, exactly the same as mine. Uh, and I think exactly the same as most. Uh, Henderson is the is the sort of auxiliary DM. De Bruyne and Grealish dovetailing. Yeah, I mean the only the only question mark on that is whether you think Jack Grealish, being an idiot in the past few weeks, puts a puts a blot on his on his on his on his sort of uh, resume for that uh, accolade to be in that team. But I don't think it does, does it? If we look at it from a footballing perspective, it's been phenomenal. Yeah, I, I, I'll be honest that. De Bruyne and Henderson were the easy two for me, mm. and the third one, Grealish, was the one that I was a little bit unsure of. Uh, mm. I looked, at, I thought about Madison, who I think's had a, mm. a good season, um, and has obviously been ahead of Grealish actually in terms of the pecking order for England, hasn't he? Mm. But I looked at, you know, I, I, I think that Aston Leicester are a much better side than Aston Villa in my opinion, mm. and I think the level of influence that Grealish has had on that on that. Side is hard to ignore on, on what is arguably a poorer side. Mm. I think he's had a, a, a greater level of he's scored more goals. He's, put, he's got more. I think he's got twice as many. Is it twice as many assists? I think as as mm. as, as Madison. So mm. I think all things considered, and, and I think the thing that Grealish has also done is that he's finally you know proved that he is the you know the level of player that people have always. Mm thought he might be and mm. I think that it's easy to invest, underestimate how big a pressure that was on him coming into this season the fact that there would have been doubts as you said you know can this guy cut it at the Premier can he be mature enough and I think while he's yes he's had one or two misdemeanors off the pitch that you, that you just alluded to but I think that on the pitch I think the level of maturity that he's shown this season has been impressive as well so much so that you know we're led to believe that there are, there are bigger uh, shall we say Premier League clubs mm. who are very keen to acquire him so Absolutely, that's, that, that's a big factor. Bit special mention to Kovacic as well, who I think's done a remarkable job at Chelsea this season. In terms of what, where he was last season, didn't really fit in. He's been the, arguably the most consistent midfielder in a, in Frank Lampard's team. Uh, and just a quick word on De Bruyne before we go to the front three: he's the best player in the league, isn't he? Surely. Well, he's, he's got to be right up there. I mean. It- I suppose met with many people, it would de- depend on who their persuasions mm. lie with. I suppose you, you know, people might say Van Dyke's the best player in the league. It depends oh, what aspect enough. of the fair enough. game that. Yeah. It depends yeah. what part of the game that you you appreciate the most. If you mm. think defending is, is the most important part, then you pick him. So mm. very difficult. But I think in terms of, I, I'll take. I, I'm presuming that you're talking purely from a technical. I was, yeah, um, from a technical. Yeah, a technical point of view. Yes, I, 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 I would agree with that. I think that he's. Technically, he's the best player in the league. Yeah. Mm. 
Fair enough. Good. On the last, on the front three, two of the three we went with, I went with Vardy as well. Uh, I also went with Mane. Uh, I went with Salah over Aubameyang, but it was a really hard one because, uh, I mean, Liverpool have been phenomenal. Aubameyang's done phenomenally well considering Arsenal have been pretty mm. average this season. Uh, and that's a, that's been kind. Vardy has, you know, I think... In many ways, I was surprised you put Vardy. He seems to be quite overlooked. I'm not sure why, because he's the top scorer in the division. But, um, mm. you know, he seems to get, I'm not going to say prejudice against, because, I don't know, maybe because he's not as fashionable as some of the other names, but there does seem to be a few overlooking Leicester's success of this season. I think he's been, you know, right at the centre of them. Yeah, and, and I think that, again, we talk about influence, and his influence on that side is there for all to see. They've punched above their weight. I think it's arguable to say this season... Leicester Rodgers has, has helped take them on to another level. And, and, you know, the way Vardy plays as well is so integral to how Leicester play. Mm. And, and I think, again, I, I mentioned earlier in this conversation about longevity. And for a player whose name, you might argue, isn't necessarily the most fashionable. You look at his history, where he came from, non-league football. He's a wonderful story, Jamie Vardy. Mm. And he's taken that on and moved up the leagues. And then not only to get to the Premier League, which for someone who was playing, you know, in non-league not that long ago, just to get to the Premier League would have been mm. seen as an astonishing achievement. Mm. But to get into the Premier League, then go on and score to the level he has done on a regular basis, season after season after season, to win the Premier League. Uh, Jamie Vardy is an incredible story. You know, you talk about off-the-pitch distractions as well. I mean, he ha- he's had one or two of those this mm. season as well, mm. which he's managed mm. To, mm. to come through as well, mm. where maybe headlines have been made through none of his doing that (laughs) might have distracted some people Mm. but um, yeah he's he's, and as you say he's the Premier League top scorer so I think it's very difficult to ignore him in terms of Aubameyang and you know Mm. highlighted him and Salah that was my quandary Mm. as well Mm. really Mane was always going to be there Mm. because I think he's been Liverpool's most influential forward Mm. but in terms of Salah and Aubameyang I just look at Aubameyang's strike rate which is fantastic but I think Again, I use this word influence, and for me, Aubameyang's influence on that Arsenal, in, in what is, let's be honest, in terms of Arsenal, this is a very average mm. Arsenal. Um, I think mm. that he, 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 has, he has showed real maturity as well, which I think some people who saw him at Dortmund, which I did a lot, might have doubted mm. whether he had that mm. maturity in his game. He mm. was, that was very often a side of things that people doubted about him, his mentality, mm. his commitment, his maturity. And I think the re- extra responsibility he's been given at Arsenal this season, he's really risen to that challenge and, and been a really important player for them, not just in terms of scoring goals, but also on, on the mentality of the side, which again has really come to the fore for me as well since Arteta took over as well. Mm. I really think Aubameyang mm. is, is one of his real leaders on the pitch and they'll hope to keep him so they can carry on doing that going forward but uh, yeah they were the reasons really I went with those, those players No yeah I mean the other, with, with Salah I think I think the only thing is uh, you know again really really good numbers part of a, a front three I mean Firmino is often integral to that doesn't get the plaudits this year I actually think he's probably been one of his slightly lesser years in terms of how, how well he's done I know he hasn't scored mm. too many goals at Anfield but you know yeah Sa- Salah and Mane phenomenal Mane's got the accol- got the plaudits the recognition from I think from I think the punters but but Salah again just doing his business in, quietly chipping away scoring important goals delivering important assists and I think that's you know yeah. that, 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 that needs to be recognised but again your argument Aubameyang also very valid because that Arsenal team is pretty well, it's, it's all over the place, really, and it's only really turned a corner since since Arteta's come in. Just before, just to finish all that off, 
I mean, it has to be Klopp, doesn't it, for the for the manager of the season? Although Ian Dark thought oh, maybe yeah. Basham and Basham, sorry, Wilder deserved a a, a a shout, which I think's fair enough. But I even said, you know, if the, as as it as it seemed to go, he could have gone on to surpass the points record. He might not do now, depending on how what they do with with the season. But yeah, mm. I mean, you, it is Klopp, isn't it? Really? Yeah, I, I agree. Really with. I agree totally that there has to be a mention for Wilder, what he's done mm. there. And again, I talk about Vardy coming through the leagues. He's another example of that. It is possible to do that. You know, mm. I think sometimes the lower leagues and, and non-league, uh, there's maybe a little bit of snobbery, football snobbery mm. comes in and, and people mm. sort of don't really give managers and, and players at that level the credit they deserve. But there's another example of someone who's learned his trade meticulously and come up through the divisions and, and backed himself. You know, I love listening to him talk because mm. when he talks, you, you really get an understanding that this is a man who, surrounded by, you know, very different philosophies, philosophies maybe that have come from abroad, he's always known what he wants to do, clearly. And, and, he's, he, and maybe some people would say it's, um, in some ways, very typical British values in, in, in terms of coaching. But he's, he's been able to bring in other aspects to that but also retain what he's very comfortable is him and back to himself. And I love that when someone's mm. so sure of themselves and is able to transfer that from a lower level up to a higher level. And I've just got so much admiration for him. But in terms of manager of the year, I mean, what Liverpool have done this mm. season phenomenal. is, yeah. well, it's, it, it, I mean, absolutely phenomenal. And, and Klopp is a, when he first came to Liverpool, mm. I remember saying to mm. someone he didn't know a great deal about him because obviously I'd watched him at Dortmund. I said, mm. what Liverpool have got here is a mm. team builder. And that's what Liverpool needed because Liverpool were not able to just write checks like City were for 100 million or 50 million or whatever. They, they, they had to be a little cleverer than that. And I think that Klopp's been, people will say, oh, look, you know, he spent this on Van Dijk, he spent that on Alec. Yeah, he did. But you look at some of the other signings as well, someone like Robertson, just for example, Alden, yeah. another yeah. example. You know, and, and I think if you look through that Liverpool side, every single one of those players really has improved under Klopp. Mm. Uh, and that's that's mm. the, the biggest compliment you can give him, really. No, absolutely. That, that and, I, and I think that summarises it perfectly. I mean, just just a word on Chris Wilder. I think he's got the perfect balance, really, of uh, an old school sort of mentality with that um, with 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 a tactical nous that you might not associate with sort of older older managers, as you say, you've gone up from the lower leagues. But you know, is there anything you'd say, you know, in summary to um, to this? to everything oh, I mean yeah no I want to give you the last the final word Adam I'd like to give you the final word this is end of the podcast I'm going to shut up you're going to sort of ex- what, what, what's your hopes for the next few months in the, amid this crisis what are your hopes for everything going on what, what do you want to see in the, well, in the near future well I just hope that we can get back to playing football in, as safely as possible that, that eventually obviously supporters are going to be able to get back mm. watching the game at the stadiums because without football supporters it, it, it just isn't going to be the same but I think to begin with it's just got to be those small steps and hopefully we mm-hmm. I think it will just you know raise the spirits of so many people it's the national game after all that if we could mm. somehow find a way to when it's right to do so start mm. to play football again uh, mm-hmm. and I just hope because it's you just realize when we haven't got it you just realize if you didn't know already what a fundamental part it plays in all of our lives and and how much we need it back as as soon as possible but I just wish everybody good health and no, that... uh, hopefully, hopefully, some good football coming in 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 the not too distant future. If if we're able to do so, that'd be great.
Oh no, yeah, I think that I think that was really well summarised. I'm glad I did that because I'd have just sort of bumbled over something uh, off the top of my head, and it wouldn't have been very pretty. But all I can say, you know, is uh, yeah, echo those good thoughts. Obviously, listen to the government guidelines and don't drink bleach because, of course, if you drink bleach, that's that's a load of fake news and it's wrong. Okay, so we can't, we don't want to be like doing that. any of that. Yeah, thank you. There we go. Most people do. I'm glad you did. Could have gone either way. Yeah, just stay tuned on this podcast. It's a stay-at-home podcast. We bring interesting people on. We hope that you also agree with us that, that i mean I, I think that was a really good chat adam and we're gonna we're gonna be keeping this going for quite a while we've got lots of people lined up uh, james will probably be on next time with peter drury i think so be sure to stay tuned for that and uh, yeah so uh thanks for that adam that was good i hope you all enjoyed Absolute that and, um, yeah and we'll and we'll see you next time